Chapter Nine of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From The Prince and the Pauper, eighteen seventy seven to eighteen eighty. Births of High and Low Degree. In the ancient city of London, on a certain autumn day, in the second quarter of the sixteenth century, a boy was born to a poor family of the name of Canty, who did not want him. On the same day, another English child was born to a rich family of the name of Tudor, who did want him. All England wanted him too. England had so longed for him, and hoped for him, and prayed God for him, that, now that he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. Mere acquaintances hugged and kissed each other, and cried. Everybody took a holiday, and high and low, rich and poor, feasted and danced and sang, and got very mellow, and they kept this up for days and nights together. By day London was a sight to see, with gay banners waving from every balcony and housetop, and splendid pageants marching along. By night it was again a sight to see, with its great bonfires at every corner, and its troops of revellers making merry around them. There was no talk in all England but of the new baby, Edward Tudor, Prince of Wales, who lay lapped in silks and satins, unconscious of all this fuss, and not knowing that great lords and ladies were tending him, and watching over him, and not caring either. But there was no talk about the other baby, Tom Canty, lapped in his poor rags, except among the family of paupers whom he had just come to trouble with his presence. THE CANTY HOME The house that Tom's father lived in was up a foul little pocket called Offal Court, out of Pudding Lane. It was small, decayed, and rickety, but it was packed full of wretchedly poor families. Canty's tribe occupied a room on the third floor. The mother and father had a sort of bedstead in the corner, but Tom, his grandmother, and his two sisters, Bet and Nan, were not restricted. They had all the floor to themselves, and might sleep where they chose. There were the remains of a blanket or two, and some bundles of ancient and dirty straw, but these could not rightly be called beds, for they were not organized. They were kicked into a general pile mornings, and selections made from the mass at night for service. London Bridge This structure, which had stood for six hundred years, and had been a noisy and populous thoroughfare all that time, was a curious affair for a closely packed rank of stores and shops, with family quarters overhead, stretched along both sides of it, from one bank of the river to the other. The bridge was a sort of a town to itself. It had its inn, its beer-houses, its bakeries, its haberdasheries, its food markets, its manufacturing industries, and even its church. It looked upon the two neighbours which it linked together, London and Southwark, as being well enough as suburbs, but not otherwise particularly important. It was a close corporation, so to speak, it was a narrow town, of a single street, a fifth of a mile long. Its population was but a village population, and everybody in it knew all his fellow-townsmen intimately, and had known their fathers and mothers before them, and all their little family affairs into the bargain. 
it had its aristocracy of course its fine old families of butchers and bakers and what not who had occupied the same old premises for five or six hundred years and knew the great history of the bridge from beginning to end and all its strange legends and who always talked bridgy talk and thought bridgy thoughts and lied in a long level substantial direct bridgy way tom canty king footnote through an exchange of clothing with the little prince tom canty suddenly found himself royalty and upon the death of henry the eighth is now king end of footnote he opened his eyes the richly clad first lord of the bedchamber was kneeling by his couch the gladness of the lying dream faded away the poor boy recognized that he was still a captive and a king the room was filled with courtiers clothed in purple mantles the mourning colour and with noble servants of the monarch tom sat up in bed and gazed out from the heavy silken curtains upon this fine company the weighty business of dressing began and one courtier after another knelt and paid his court and offered to the little king his condolences upon his heavy loss while the dressing proceeded in the beginning a shirt was taken up by the chief equerry in waiting who passed it to the first lord of the buckhounds who passed it to the second gentleman of the bedchamber who passed it to the head ranger of windsor forest who passed it to the third groom of the stole who passed it to the chancellor royal of the duchy of lancaster who passed it to the master of the wardrobe who passed it to the noroy king-at-arms who passed it to the constable of the tower who passed it to the chief steward of the household who passed it to the hereditary grand diaperer who passed it to the lord high admiral of england who passed it to the archbishop of canterbury who passed it to the first lord of the bedchamber who took what was left of it and put it on tom poor little wondering chap it reminded him of passing buckets at a fire a secretary of state presented an order of the council appointing the morrow at eleven for the reception of the foreign ambassadors and desired the king's assent tom turned an inquiring look toward hertford who whispered your majesty will signify consent they come to testify their royal master's sense of the heavy calamity which hath visited your grace and the realm of england tom did as he was bidden another secretary began to read a preamble concerning the expenses of the late king's household which had amounted to twenty-eight thousand pounds during the preceding six months a sum so vast that it made tom canty gasp he gasped again when the fact appeared that twenty thousand pounds of this money were still owing and unpaid and once more when it appeared that the king's coffers were about empty and his twelve hundred servants much embarrassed for lack of the wages due them tom spoke out with lively apprehension we be going to the dogs tis plain tis meet and necessary that we take a smaller house and set the servants at large sith they be of no value but to make delay and trouble one with offices that harass the spirit and shame the soul they misbecoming any but a doll that hath nor brains nor hands to help itself withal 
I remember me of a small house that standeth over against the fish-market, by Billingsgate. A sharp pressure upon Tom's arm stopped his foolish tongue, and sent a blush to his face. But no countenance there betrayed any sign that this strange speech had been remarked or given concern. THE LITTLE KING IN PRISON Footnote. Miles Hendon has taken the real prince, now a wanderer, under his protection. In the course of their adventures, the two have landed in prison. End of footnote. Hendon's arts all failed with the king. He could not be comforted, but a couple of women who were chained near him succeeded better. Under their gentle ministrations, he found peace and learned a degree of patience. He was very grateful, and came to love them dearly, and to delight in the sweet and soothing influence of their presence. He asked them why they were in prison, and when they said they were Baptists, he smiled and inquired, Is that a crime to be shut up for in a prison? Now I grieve, for I shall lose ye. They will not keep ye long for such a little thing. They did not answer, and something in their faces made him uneasy. He said eagerly, "'You do not speak. Be good to me, and tell me. There will be no other punishment? Prithee, tell me there is no fear of that.' They tried to change the topic, but his fears were aroused, and he pursued it. "'Will they scourge thee? No, no, they would not be so cruel. Say they would not. Come, they will not, will they?' The women betrayed confusion and distress but there was no avoiding an answer, so one of them said, in a voice choked with emotion, O oh, thou wilt break our hearts, thou gentle spirit, God will help us to bear our... It is a confession, the king broke in, then they will scourge thee, the stony-hearted wretches, but O oh, thou must not weep, I cannot bear it, keep up thy courage, I shall come to my own in time, to save thee from this bitter thing, and I will do it. When the king awoke in the morning, the women were gone. "'They are saved,' he said joyfully, then added despondently, "'But woe is me, for they were my comforters.' Each of them had left a shred of ribbon pinned to his clothing, in token of remembrance. He said he would keep these things always, and that soon he would seek out these dear good friends of his, and take them under his protection." Just then the jailer came in, with some subordinates, and commanded that the prisoners be conducted to the jail-yard. The king was overjoyed. It would be a blessed thing to see the blue sky and breathe the fresh air once more. He fretted and chafed at the slowness of the officers. But his turn came at last, and he was released from his stable, and ordered to follow the other prisoners with Hendon. The court, or quadrangle, was stone-paved and open to the sky. The prisoners entered it through a massive archway of masonry, and were placed in file, standing, with their backs against the wall. A rope was stretched in front of them, and they were also guarded by their officers. It was a chill and lowering morning, and a light snow which had fallen during the night whitened the great empty space and added to the general dismalness of its aspect. Now and then a wintry wind shivered through the place, and sent the snow eddying hither and thither. In the centre of the court stood two women, 
chained to posts. A glance showed the king that these were his good friends. He shuddered and said to himself, Alack, they are not gone free as I had thought, to think that such as these should know the lash, in England. Ay, there's the shame of it, not in heathenness, but Christian England. They will be scourged, and I, whom they have comforted and kindly entreated, must look on and see the great wrong done. It is strange, so strange, that I, the very source of power in this broad realm, am helpless to protect them. But let these miscreants look well to themselves, for there is a day coming when I will require of them a heavy reckoning for this work. For every blow they strike now, they shall feel a hundred then. A great gate swung open, and a crowd of citizens poured in. They flocked around the two women, and hid them from the king's view. A clergyman entered and passed through the crowd, and he also was hidden. The king now heard talking, back and forth, as if questions were being asked and answered, but he could not make out what was said. Next there was a deal of bustle and preparation, and much passing and repassing of officials through that part of the crowd that stood on the further side of the women, and while this proceeded a deep hush gradually fell upon the people. Now by command the masses parted and fell aside, and the king saw a spectacle that froze the marrow in his bones. Faggots had been piled about the two women, and a kneeling man was lighting them. The women bowed their heads and covered their faces with their hands. The yellow flames began to climb upward among the snapping and crackling faggots, and wreaths of blue smoke to stream away on the wind. The clergyman lifted his hands and began a prayer. Just then two young girls came flying through the great gate, uttering piercing screams, and threw themselves upon the women at the stake. Instantly they were torn away by the officers, and one of them was kept in a tight grip, but the other broke loose, saying she would die with her mother, and before she could be stopped she had flung her arms about her mother's neck again. She was torn away once more, and with her gown on fire. Two or three men held her, and the burning portion of her gown was snatched off and thrown flaming aside, she struggling all the while to free herself, and saying she would be alone in the world now, and begging to be allowed to die with her mother. Both the girls screamed continually, and fought for freedom. But suddenly this tumult was drowned under a volley of heart-piercing shrieks of mortal agony. The king glanced from the frantic girls to the stake, then turned away and leaned his ashen face against the wall, and looked no more. He said, That which I have seen, in that one little moment, will never go out from my memory, but will abide there, and I shall see it all the days and dream of it all the nights, till I die. Would God I had been blind! Hendon was watching the king. He said to himself, with satisfaction, His disorder mendeth, he hath changed, and groweth gentler. If he had followed his wont, he would have stormed at these varlets, and said he was king, and commanded that the women be turned loose unscathed. Soon his delusion will pass away and be forgotten, and his poor mind will be whole again. God speed the day! That same day, 
several prisoners were brought in to remain overnight who were being conveyed under guard to various places in the kingdom to undergo punishment for crimes committed the king conversed with these he had made it a point from the beginning to instruct himself for the kingly office by questioning prisoners whenever the opportunity offered and the tale of their woes wrung his heart one of them was a poor half-witted woman who had stolen a yard or two of cloth from a weaver she was to be hanged for it another was a man who had been accused of stealing a horse he said the proof had failed and he had imagined that he was safe from the halter but no he was hardly free before he was arraigned for killing a deer in the king's park this was proved against him and now he was on his way to the gallows there was a tradesman's apprentice whose case particularly distressed the king this youth said he found a hawk one evening that had escaped from its owner and he took it home with him imagining himself entitled to it but the court convicted him of stealing it and sentenced him to death the king was furious over these inhumanities and wanted hendon to break jail and fly with him to westminster so that he could mount his throne and hold out his sceptre in mercy over these unfortunate people and save their lives poor child sighed hendon these woeful tales have brought his malady upon him again alack but for this evil hap he would have been well in a little time among these prisoners was an old lawyer a man with a strong face and a dauntless mien three years passed he had written a pamphlet against the lord chancellor accusing him of injustice and had been punished for it by the loss of his ears in the pillory and degradation from the bar and in addition had been fined three thousand pounds and sentenced to imprisonment for life lately he had repeated his offence and in consequence was now under sentence to lose what remained of his ears pay a fine of five thousand pounds be branded on both cheeks and remain in prison for life these be honourable scars he said and turned back his grey hair and showed the mutilated stubs of what had once been his ears the king's eyes burned with passion he said none believed in me neither wilt thou but no matter within the compass of a month thou shalt be free and more the laws that have dishonoured thee and shamed the english name shall be swept from the statute books the world is made wrong kings should go to school to their own laws at times and so learn mercy tom canty the first whilst the true king wandered about the land poorly clad poorly fed cuffed and derided by tramps one while herding with thieves and murderers in a jail another and called idiot and impostor by all impartially the mock king tom canty enjoyed a quite different experience when we saw him last royalty was just beginning to have a bright side for him this bright side went on brightening more and more every day in a very little while it was become almost all sunshine and delightfulness he lost his fears his misgivings faded out and died his embarrassments departed and gave place to an easy and confident bearing he ordered my lady elizabeth and my lady jane grey into his presence 
when he wanted to play or talk, and dismissed them when he was done with them, with the air of one familiarly accustomed to such performances. It no longer confused him to have these lofty personages kiss his hand at parting. He came to enjoy being conducted to bed in state at night, and dressed with intricate and solemn ceremony in the morning. It came to be a proud pleasure to march to dinner attended by a glittering procession of officers of state and gentlemen-at-arms, insomuch, indeed, that he doubled his guard of gentlemen-at-arms, and made them a hundred. He liked to hear the bugles sounding down the long corridors, and the distant voices responding, "'Way for the King!' He even learned to enjoy sitting enthroned state in council and seeming to be something more than the Lord Protector's mouthpiece. He liked to receive great ambassadors and their gorgeous trains, and listen to the affectionate messages they brought from illustrious monarchs who called him brother. Oh, happy Tom Canty, late of awful court! Tom is recognized. The great pageant moved on, and still on, under one triumphal arch after another, and past a bewildering succession of spectacular and symbolical tableaux, each of which typified and exalted some virtue, or talent, or merit, of the little kings. Throughout the whole of Cheapside, from every penthouse and window, hung banners and streamers, and the richest carpets, stuffs, and cloth of gold tapestried the streets, specimens of the great wealth of the stores within. And the splendor of this thoroughfare was equaled in the other streets, and in some even surpassed. And all these wonders and these marvels are to welcome me, me, murmured Tom Canty. The mock king's cheeks were flushed with excitement, his eyes were flashing, his senses swam in a delirium of pleasure. At this point, just as he was raising his hand to fling another rich largesse, he caught sight of a pale, astounded face, which was strained forward out of the second rank of the crowd, its intense eyes riveted upon him. A sickening consternation struck through him. He recognized his mother, and up flew his hand, palm outward, before his eyes, that old involuntary gesture, born of a forgotten episode, and perpetuated by habit. In an instant more she had torn her way out of the press, and passed the guards, and was at his side. She embraced his leg, she covered it with kisses. She cried, "'Oh, my child, my darling!' Lifting toward him a face that was transfigured with joy and love, the same instant an officer of the king's guard snatched her away with a curse, and sent her reeling back whence she came, with a vigorous impulse from his strong arm. The words, I do not know you, woman, were falling from Tom Canty's lips when this piteous thing occurred, but it smote him to the heart to see her treated so, and as she turned for a last glimpse of him, whilst the crowd was swallowing her from his sight, she seemed so wounded, so broken-hearted, that a shame fell upon him, which consumed his pride to ashes, and withered his stolen royalty. His grandeurs were stricken valueless, they seemed to fall away from him like rotten rags. The procession moved on, and still on, 
through ever-augmenting splendours, and even augmenting tempests of welcome. But to Tom Canty they were as if they had not been. He neither saw nor heard. Royalty had lost its grace and sweetness. Its pomps were become a reproach. Remorse was eating his heart out. He said, Would God I were free of my captivity! End of chapter 9